Good morning. My name is Andrew Evans. I'm a deacon here at Church of the Resurrection. Let me invite you to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 14. Phoebe did an amazing job reading all these names, didn't she? What a difficult passage. What a weird passage. Um, one commentator I was looking at for this passage called this the most obscure chapter in all of Genesis. But it's God's word, and he has a lot to say to us here. So, before we get started, let me pray for us. Father, you tell us in your word that when you speak, your word does not come back to you empty. Would you speak here today to your people here in this room? Pray all this in Jesus' name. A grandfather invites his grandson to come to the garage out back. He has something he wants to show him. They go back there, and he opens up the garage door. And sitting there is a gleaming red 1973 Camaro convertible. The 10-year-old boy's eyes sort of pop open real wide. And the grandfather puts his arm on his 10-year-old grandson's shoulder and tells him, Buddy, one day, I promise you, this beautiful car will be yours. Right at that moment, there's an earthquake. And the shaking causes a metal shelf in the garage that's full of tools to come crashing down on top of this beautiful car. The top of the car is utterly destroyed. A door falls off, several windows are broken, two tires go flat, there's a hissing sound from the engine. And once the shaking stops, the boy stands up and is left just staring at this destroyed promise. But the grandfather seems unfazed. He puts his hand on his grandson's shoulder and tells him, I promise you, one day this car will be yours. We are continuing our series on the book, on, this, on the story of Abraham, also Abram in, in our story. And just like this boy, Abram has received a great promise. At the very beginning of the story of Abram, God comes to him and tells him that he will bless him and make his descendants into a nation who will then bless the whole world. And part of being a nation is that you have land. And so, in chapter 13, just before our chapter here in Genesis chapter 14, God tells Abram this. Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. Arise, walk through the land the length and the breadth of it, for I will give it to you. Abram is living with a great promise, several great promises. And the Bible shows us and tells us that the Christian church, we here today are actually the inheritors of these promises to Abram. We're not promised land in the same way, but we are God's people living under God's 
promise in God's presence. We're promised so many things in the gospel. We're promised forgiveness of sin. We're promised communion with God. We're promised transformation of life. And we are promised that in that last day, we will come into the promised land of God's kingdom. We are the recipients of great promises. And all of these promises find their root in these promises to Abram. But chapter 14 presents us with a massive, massive problem. Just like this 10-year-old boy who's staring at the wreckage of his promised sports car, Abram in this chapter is left staring out over a wasteland of a promised land that's been ravaged by war. And so it raises the question, are God's promises trustworthy? God just promised this land, and now it's been just destroyed. Can't he trust what God tells him? And the same is true for us as well. Can we trust God's promises? Can we trust that what God tells us in his word will be true? Can we believe that? And so this passage raises the question for us, but then it points us to God's faithfulness to Abram. And so it shows us that God's promises are absolutely trustworthy. And so we should submit ourselves to God before all others. God's promises are absolutely trustworthy. And so we must submit ourselves to Him before all others. I want to divide this chapter into three scenes. We'll look first at the war, then we'll look at Abram's daring rescue mission, and then we'll look at Abram's confrontation with two kings. So the war, rescue mission, and the two kings. That's where we're headed. First, let's look at the war. This scene of the, of the war is jarring for a couple of reasons. If you imagine the book of Genesis as a movie, the previous scene ended being focused on one man, very tightly focused on one individual who's worshiping God. And then all of a sudden, at the beginning of chapter 14, the camera pans way out to, to matters of, of state and global importance. The first king that's mentioned in chapter 14 is Aramphel, king of Shinar. And we've already heard about the land of Shinar. This is actually where the Tower of Babel was built, in the plain of Shinar. And it's where the, uh, the empire of Babylon will eventually be located. This place is all the way on the other side of the Fertile Crescent, hundreds of miles away, across a vast desert. It is so far away. But here we learn about these four foreign kingdoms who have an alliance with each other. And we learn that five local kingdoms are serving one of these kings, but then they decide to rebel. And these four kingdoms come down to, to put down this rebellion. We just see matters of alliances and wars and rebellions. The, the scene has shifted so dramatically, hasn't it? From one man to kingdoms. But it's jarring for another reason as well. It shows just how insecure this land is. These four foreign kingdoms don't just put down the rebellious kingdoms. They actually defeat everyone who is in their path. Look at verses 5 through 7. We see that these foreign kingdoms destroy 
who did they destroy? They destroyed the Rephaim, and they get the Zuzim, and the Emim, the Horites, the Amalekites, the Amorites. I don't think any of these were the, the five local kingdoms who were rebelling. But then the text is very uh, quick to show us the location. So we can actually trace the location, trace the path of these foreign empires coming through. It's like they're coming in from the north, they're sweeping past the rebellious kingdoms, going all the way down to the south of Palestine, defeating people at the very edge of the desert, then turning right back around, coming back up to the Dead Sea, and then, and only then, dealing with the rebellious kingdoms there. These aren't just marauding bands coming through the land. These are foreign empires who are imposing their will on a distant country. And it's this distant country that's being overrun by these empires, seemingly at will. This is the land that God promised to Abram. Do you see how insecure the land is? So if this land is so insecure that right after the promise of the land, it gets overrun by war, are his promises really any good? Are they trustworthy? This is the question that the text raises, but it illustrates a really important point for us. God's promises don't come packaged for convenience. God's promises don't come with an assurance of an easy life. Just because we are the recipients of God's promises doesn't mean that our life will be easy. We can be trusting God. That means the circumstances of our life can still become so unstable. Maybe our job evaporates. Maybe we get hurt and we're stuck in a wheelchair for weeks and weeks. Maybe members of our family leave us and they die. These are the circumstances of our life where we feel so unstable. And we see that instability here in this text. But God is bigger than these circumstances. It may not be clear exactly how God will fulfill his promise. But we know that God will fulfill his promises to his people. This is so important for us to remember as Christians. Our circumstances may seem to belie the security that God promises us, but God is bigger than our circumstances. God's promises are true even in the midst of war. And this is true for us as well. So the war shows us that God's promises are secure, even when the circumstances seem insecure. But then Abram's rescue mission, this is the second scene, shows us that we have the courage to act with integrity, even at great personal risk, because of God's promises. Think about just how risky this rescue mission is. These four powerful armies have swept into the land from the north. They've defeated everyone in their path, including, but not limited to, the rebellious kingdoms. Then they're racing back up to the north with their captives, including Abram's nephew, Lot. Abram is a wealthy guy. We learned that a chapter or two earlier. But he can only muster a force of 318 men. This almost certainly was smaller than the force he was going to be facing, a force that was undefeated. For thinking just about the strategy, Abram has really slim odds of success here. In fact, he's liable to be killed 
in this rescue mission. So what gives him the confidence to go and try to rescue his nephew? Well, part of the challenge with Abram is that he's actually responsible for Lot. He has, uh, Lot is the son of his dead brother, Abram's dead brother, and Lot and Abram traveled together to the promised land together. So Abram is responsible for Lot. Abandoning Lot means abandoning his family. It means abandoning his integrity. It means abandoning the righteous call that God has put on his life to care for those who are in his family. So despite the risk, what uh, Abram marches out. Why does he do this? The text doesn't give us insight into what Abram is thinking, but it does give us the context for this. And that's that God has promised to preserve Abram, that he will bless him, that he will bring him into the land, that he will possess the land, that his descendants will possess the land. So it's not hard to see how this promise that God has given to Abram gives him the confidence to step out and do what is righteous, even though it is incredibly risky to him. God's promises are secure. So he's able to step out and do what is right, even though it is tremendously risky for him. And the same reality is true for us as well. We're not promised land, nor are we promised life. We're not promised physical health, but we are promised so much. We're promised eternal life with God. We're promised perfect forgiveness now. These promises are real. One way that this can play out is this might feel kind of mundane, but is in the simple act of admitting that you've made a mistake and then apologizing for it. When you do something wrong you're, and then you admit to it, you're giving the person that you're admitting to tremendous power over you, aren't you? You're giving them the ability to just sort of bludgeon you on the head and guilt trip you. You're giving them the power to extend your forgiveness, or you're giving them the power to withhold that forgiveness. You're giving them tremendous, tremendous power over you. But the promise of God is that if you are in Christ, you're washed by His blood through faith, then you are forgiven at the throne of God. This is a promise that is true and secure, and that ultimate security should give us the confidence to do what is right and to admit when we've done something wrong and to seek forgiveness for it. Let me give you another example. Again, this might feel kind of mundane, but it can be very risky to love your neighbor, especially when you're reaching out across cultural lines. If you're pressing into somebody's life, it can be the, the, the opportunity and risk of a misunderstanding, of a miscommunication, of somebody taking offense is really very, very high. And the next thing you know, you're getting laid into by your neighbor. But the promise of God is that we are secure in Christ with Him. That our ultimate security lies with God. And that ultimate security should give us the confidence to then step out and seek to love our neighbor. And love our neighbor well. Now we shouldn't do so stupidly. We shouldn't do so rashly or foolishly. Abram isn't foolish or rash here. He uses a kind of strategy to defeat the enemies, to fighting his forces, going at night. We need to be prudent and wise as well. But we can still step out with confidence and boldness to do what is right and just because of God's promises to us. 
God's promises are true. And they give us the security to do what is right. Even a tremendous personal risk. So God's promises are secure, even in insecure circumstances. And the certainty of God's promises gives us the confidence to do what is right, even at great personal risk. But God's promises don't just give to us. They actually demand something of us as well. Look with me at the story of Abram and the two kings, the king from Salem and the king from Sodom. This text is setting up a, a strong contrast between these two kings. Just start with their name. The king of Sodom doesn't have a name. But the king of Salem does have a name. It's Melchizedek. The king of Sodom has just been defeated. The king of Salem is undefeated. The king of uh, Sodom has just come from a war. But Melchizedek is the king of Salem. Salem is the same root as peace, of shalom. So Melchizedek is the king of peace. Sodom, we learn in chapter 13, is a city that's full of unrighteousness, it's full of sin. And yet Melchizedek, the name literally means king of righteousness. Melchizedek comes into the scene offering gifts, giving. But the king of Sodom, the first thing he says is a demand. There's a sharp contrast between these two characters going on in this story. But this contrast points <clears throat> to how Abram will actually receive the promised land. Look at the offer from the king of Sodom in verse 21. Here, the king of Sodom is offering to give Abram all the spoil to make him even wealthier. And all Abram has to do is hand over the people. It seems generous. But there's a catch, and Abram sees this in his response. He points this out. That the cost of accepting all of these resources is that he would then become entangled with a king who is unrighteous. Abram almost certainly could use this new wealth to buy more land. He could use the wealth, use this offer that the king of Sodom is giving him to start to possess the land as God has promised him. But the downside, the cost, is that he would start to inherit the promise, but at the cost of a relationship with God. And so, Abram turns down the offer. It's as though he's saying, I cannot accept the promises of God without accepting God himself. God's promises always come with a relationship with him. And this relationship is actually what we see in Abram's interaction with Melchizedek. After Melchizedek gives Abram and his people provision, food, after a long journey, and then blesses Abram, Abram then turns to him and gives him a tenth of everything. This tenth of everything, this tithe, I don't think we should see that as a kind of free will offering. Abram's not just being a nice guy to Melchizedek. He's giving him a tribute. He's offering a tribute to the superior sovereign. Now, why would Abram entangle himself by giving a tribute to one king in the land while refusing any kind of entanglement with the other king? Why would he do that? The answer comes in verse 18. Melchizedek isn't just a random king. The text tells us he was a priest of God Most High. He's a priest of Abram's God, of the true God, the only God, 
the God who not only promised Abram the land, but delivered his enemies into his hand. And Melchizedek is a priest, which means he's a kind of ambassador. He's representing God to Abram. And so when Abram gives this tribute payment to Melchizedek, he's saying, I am swearing my allegiance to you. I am loyal to you before all others. I am loyal to God before all others. God's promises are so great that I cannot do anything but be loyal to you first and before all others. I submit to you, God, and I'm trusting you to fulfill your promises to me. And this is so important for us to remember. Because it's so tempting for us to try to divide God's promises from a relationship with God himself. God promises us perfect forgiveness of sins. But that doesn't give us the license to then turn around and just do whatever we want. God, Jesus tells us that he came to give us abundance of life. But we can't then just turn around and define that abundance in any way that we want. These promises all imply a relationship with God. God gives us promises, but we must submit ourselves to Him first and before all others. But God doesn't exact the submission from us in a harsh way, like a tyrant. But look at verses 18 through 20 again. Did you notice the order that these things happen here? With under normal circumstances, we might expect Abram to give the tribute payment and then to receive provision and blessing. That's sort of how it's, it works in a standard way. But that's not what Melchizedek does here, is it? Melchizedek comes and blesses Abram first. He gives him food, he gives him drink, he blesses him, and only then does Abram then say, I submit myself to you and to God through you. Abram is submitting after he receives a blessing. And friends, this is a picture of the gospel. This is what God does for us. We don't come to God and offer our tribute and expect Him to bless us as though we're putting God in our debt. That's not how the gospel works. God blesses us first. He provides for all that we need in Christ. And because of that blessing, we lay hold of it and submit ourselves to Him. Because He's such a faithful and good God. Just like Melchizedek provided for Abel, God provides for us. And so it's no coincidence that the book of Hebrews, which he be read, names Jesus as the heir and the follower of the greater Melchizedek. Just like Melchizedek stood before Abram, holding bread and holding wine, Jesus stood before his disciples, holding bread and wine. But this time, the bread and the wine were not just provision for weary travelers. They pointed to the greatest feast of possible. Jesus Christ himself poured out for us to carry us to that promised land of the kingdom of God. This is what Jesus gives us. Friends, just like Abram, we are the recipients of great promises. These promises are secure even when our life seems to be spiral.
trembling into war. These promises should give us the confidence to step out and do what is right. But friends, we can have a greater confidence even than Abraham. Because we see how the story ends. We see how all of these promises come together in Jesus Christ. How in Christ God has provided everything that we need. All of these promises point to Jesus. And so we see just how these promises are trustworthy. They're trustworthy. Christ shows us the character of our God. Who in the fullness of time fulfilled all of his promises to his people. How can we do anything but submit ourselves to such a faithful and gracious king? In the name of the Father and the Son. Amen.